today I walked here. I usually, I've never walked to church, and I walked, it was about six. It was really coming down, and, um, and I made the decision on the way here. Maybe it's because it was snowing so much, and I clouded my judgment, I don't know. But I made the decision that the sermon that I prepared for today on mental illness and mental health, I'm going to preach next week and just push the thing back one week. Okay, hear me out. And I made that decision. There's actually more people here than I thought would be here. And I made that decision because it's an important enough issue that I want everyone who can be here that there be no barrier to hear that. And I know we put it online, and I know we could have just done that. But I think there's also something about hearing a word in person and processing it with each other afterwards. So I made that decision. So today, um, I'm brushing off a sermon from May 6th, 2012. Who remembers that one? (laughs) Yeah, okay. And I polished it up, and the reason I chose it is because while the sermon itself does not address mental health or mental illness directly, it carries themes that we will be revisiting in the coming weeks. Themes of shame, uh, uh, maybe not stigma per se, though that's what next week's sermon will be about. Um, The power of love and fear. And so that's why I picked uh, this, chose this sermon uh, for today. Next week's sermon will be on stigma. I asked a friend of mine who has a mental illness. I asked them, if there was one thing you would hope to hear from your church, what would it be? And this person said to me, to acknowledge the stigma that exists with mental illness. So that's what next week will be about and how to think about that theologically. Okay. Today's text comes from 1 John, the epistle of 1 John, chapter 4. And these Bibles uh, in front of us that look like this, and you can take it home, you can keep it. I'll be reading on page 986, page 986. And I want to invite everyone to stand as you are able to hear the reading of Scripture today. I'll be starting in verse 7. So in that first column, um, a little more than halfway down the page, page 986, from the book of 1 John, chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, And his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, 
we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who confess that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in, the, in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love drives out all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. We love each other because he loved us first. May God bless the reading of this word and would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would Give us each a word today from your spirit, the word we need from you. In as much as you want to use my words to do that, God, please do so. But speak to us regardless. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If you've ever read the letter of First John, you might have picked up on how repetitive it can be. Maybe you felt that way as I read it just moments ago, just how repetitive it is. At every corner, it's the same thing. God loves you, so go love people. In the words of Yogi Berra, it's like deja vu all over again. God loves you, so go go love people. God loves you, so go love people. God loves you, so go love people. He just keeps saying it. Maybe we just need to keep hearing it. There's a story that comes from our friend Jim Jackson from Connected Families, uh, and this story comes from his work with families. It's about a boy named Eric and his dad, Larry. Uh, In the 2012 version, his name was Brian, um, but with Brian at the piano today, I didn't want you to feel like I was picking on you. So in the 2020 version, his name is going to be Larry. The son, Eric, hated math. He didn't get math. He thought math was boring. Nothing put Eric in a bad mood quite like math. Uh, Eric, I'm not picking on you and your math abilities, by the way. I should have changed the kid's name, too. We have a Larry in the house as well. (laughs) When I said I polished this up, I guess what I really meant was, I printed it out again. (laughs) No, I did make some changes to it. Thanks for uh, hanging with me. But according to Eric, and I want to make sure I get this quote correctly, math is dumb. Things only got worse for Eric in sixth grade because that's when math got more difficult for him. The teacher went so fast and Eric was trying, <clears throat> but he just couldn't keep up. He fell behind. And after conferences one time, Eric's dad came home with a new rule. You can't play with your friends until you finish your homework. You cannot play your video games until you get your math 
homework done. Those consequences seem reasonable given the situation, right? But still, yuck! The problem was, Eric's math homework took him forever. Pretty soon, Eric hardly got any time to play with his video games. He hardly got to see any of his friends, so Eric decided to start lying to his dad about his math homework. Five o'clock would come, Eric's dad would walk in the door after a tough day of work. Is your math homework done? Yep, but his math homework wasn't done. He never even took it out of his backpack. Okay then, dad said. If your homework is done, go ahead, go play with your friends. And Eric would run out the door. The plan seemed to be going brilliantly for about a week. That's when Eric's teacher called home. When Larry, or Brian, received that phone call, when he learned that his son wasn't doing his homework, when he learned that his son had been lying to him every day, Brian felt, or Larry, felt betrayed. He was mad, and he hit the roof. No son of mine is going to lie to his father like that. Do you know what would have happened to me if I pulled that stunt on my father? You're grounded, young man. No friends, no video games, no nothing. Not till you get caught up in math. From now on, in the, from the minute I get home, you're going to show me your math homework. We're going to sit down. We're going to make sure that you get it right. Again, these consequences seem reasonable given the situation. That's reasonable. And that plan seemed to be going great for Dad for about a week. Then Eric, uh, the son, became completely disheartened about math. And it became more and more difficult for him. Five o'clock would hit. Dad would walk in the door. Let me see your homework, Eric. All the other subjects, Eric had them done, but not math. He hadn't even touched math. He didn't even pull it out of his backpack. And the rest of the night just became pulling teeth. The boy made excuses. He'd whine. He'd tried bargaining for a better deal. And of course, he'd cry out in frustration, math is dumb. Most nights ended in complete exhaustion for Eric and for Dad. Sometimes Eric sobbed as Brian sat with his boy trying to help him get math. Um, Dad did, did everything but just do the homework for him. And the boy became increasingly ashamed of himself around his dad. He knew his dad was disappointed in him. But how does an 11-year-old bring that up with his father? How does an 11-year-old say, I'm feeling ashamed of myself? Math homework had graded on every aspect of their relationship. Jesus said that it just takes a little bit of yeast to spoil a whole, to, to, to work the whole batch. Just a little. And one of the times when he said this, he was referring to the way that the Pharisees had harmful teachings, specifically about legalism, that could work its way into a community of believers. The point Jesus was making in that context was that when a community starts to believe harmful things, those things permeate and destroy a community. 
This concept is also true in relationships. Left unchecked, all it takes is a few negative interactions, say, a couple of weeks' worth of horrible math episodes, and the entire relationship can become sour. We start to believe things that aren't even true about our parents or about our children or our friends or our coworkers. And then one day, we find that this person who once brought us such great joy turns us angry or bitter or ashamed or frustrated. And then what? That's no way to live. Well, Dad decided to bring this situation up with one of his friends. I really don't know what to do, he said. Eric displays these behaviors. I'm not sure he even wants to be around me anymore. And I'm torn. Math is important. And I want my son to learn that. Maybe I'm pushing him too hard. I don't know. This is killing us both. I really don't know what to do. His friend listened to him, and then as gently as he could, he said this. Does Eric know that you love him? I mean, in the middle of the conflict, in the middle of that mess, does he know that? The dad felt very hurt by this. Of course he does. I'm his dad. Of course he knows I love him. Everything I do is for that kid. Why do you think I'm doing all this stuff anyway? Nope, nope, that's, that's not what I asked you. I mean, in the middle of one of those knock-down, drag-out math fights, have you ever told your son, then and there, you love, <clears throat> excuse me, you love him no matter what, that he could fail math, and his status in your home would not move one inch? Does he know that? At this point, uh, the dad became a little peeved with his friend. Are you kidding me? Is is my son supposed to feel more loved by me when he's failing math? That'll just make him think it's okay to fail math. And that's not okay. Math's important. And he's becoming irresponsible. Irresponsible. I would never have gotten away with this when I was a kid. My dad would never have let me do this. There was some silence at this point, and for the first time, all this math, in the middle of all this math stuff, dad heard him say something out loud that uh, was kind of quiet in his thinking before. And now he wasn't so sure that he believed what he had just said. Was he trying to do what was best for his son or was he trying to please his dad? Brian's friend broke the silence or the dad's friend broke the silence. You're right. Math is important. Do you have any other ideas on how to encourage your son? No. Have you ever had a friend do something like that for you? You're you're, you're looking at this back in someone's eye, maybe your kids or maybe your spouses or maybe your parents looking at that speck and, and your friend says, hey, you've you got a big old two-by-four right there on the bridge of your nose. I've had that. Boy, good friends, they'll just speak truth right into your life. You don't want to hear it, you don't want to admit it, but you know they're right. And the only reason you're even willing to listen is because they're such a good friend. 
Not a bunch of yes sirs, yes ma'ams, but a friend who will look at life and just hold up a mirror every now and again. So dad says to his friend, okay, I'll give it a try. The next time I'm with my son and we get locked into another math fight, I'll do my best to tell him I love him. Just make sure, the friend said, make sure you mean it. When you tell your son you love him, it has to be sincere. You can't be expecting or demanding a change in the behavior. Don't tell him you love him so he'll start doing his math. That's manipulation, and kids see right through it. They do, by the way. At least mine do. That's not love coming out of you. That's manipulation. The Bible teaches us that even in the middle of our, our worst moments, in the middle of, of even disobedience, sin, that God demonstrated love for us. Romans 5.8, some of us could recite it by memory. God demonstrates his love for us this way. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Whew. In other words, in the middle of our worst, God demonstrated love. That's the gospel. John reminds us, the, the epistle of John reminds us of this at every turn. It's like every other word. God loves us, so go, go love others. And this seems to come out yeah, in this passage very clearly. But it's a tall order, isn't it? Because the place where God chose to demonstrate love most powerfully was in the middle of our misbehavior. So in order for us to demonstrate the same kind of love, we must be willing, stubborn even, to extend love to people in the middle of conflict, especially in the middle of conflict. It's easy to show love to someone when, you know, they like you and they're nice to you and all they do is all the stuff you want them to do and everything that comes out of their mouths you agree with. But everyone does that, even evil people. But to love the way God wants us to love means something more. Welcome back, kiddos. Loving people in the middle of conflict doesn't mean that we're going to act the same way in every situation. Uh, of course not. But it does mean that we treat people with respect and dignity and love in the middle of, um, even if we're hurt. It means we don't fly off in a huff because a person won't do what we want. It means we don't demand our own way uh, not even with our children. It means we won't be rude, not even to rude people. It means we make a real attempt to be patient and kind, empowered by God's Holy Spirit. It means that we will take a hold of our anger, calm down, in order to work things out like adults. We do all of this even when we're hurt with parents, spouses, children, friends. And when we show love, it is not in a way that tries to manipulate, um, but just simply to show love. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, so we ought to lay our lives down for each other. 1 John 3.16. John tells us to love one another because God loves us. That's it right there. That's the motivation, the reason that we need. God loves us, so if we want to have the love of God flowing through and in us, then we show love as well. 
So after dad finished up this conversation with his friend, he drives home and he he prays this prayer in his car. He said, God, help me to be more in touch with my love for my son in this whole math thing. It was a simple prayer. Maybe it was the first time during this whole uh, math thing that he prayed like that. God, change me. Change the way I love. That's a pretty good prayer. When he got home, it was about 5 o'clock. Eric, can I see your homework, please? The boy was in fine form. He threw out every excuse in the book, complete with whining and complaining. He kept it all off with a rousing, Math is dumb! <laughs> the dad started to get angry again. And just as dad was about to lay into the boy, he caught himself, he took a deep breath, and he prayed that prayer one more time in his head. God, help me be more in touch with my love for my son. And then he just listened. He let the boy just go off. He listened to his son complain about math, complain about the teacher, complained about how much he hated homework. And in listening, something strange happened to that dad. He began to feel a new sense of compassion for his son. And it dawned on him. I really do love this little tyke. Hmm. And the boy felt it too. And the boy looked at his dad and he said, Dad, is something wrong with you? Dad sat down next to his boy so that they were at the same level. He looked at his son in the eyes, and he said, Son, doing math is important. But do you know what's more important? The boy shook his head, not knowing what to expect. What's far more important to me is how much I love you and how much I believe in you. And it doesn't matter if you're good at math or bad at math. Nothing can change that. I love you no matter what. And even if you fail at math, you are my son. And you're a part of this family. And I'm here to help, I'm here to help you. The boy's eyes filled with tears. He, j- he jumped into the arms of his father. He began to sob. I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. I'm just not very good at it, and I feel so stupid. It's okay, son. We can work this out together, you and me. And then they hugged for a little while. Now, this was not a magic wand on Eric's math ability. He still struggled. It's just that he wasn't afraid. He wasn't ashamed about it. He didn't feel so alone about it. He had a new security in who he was and a new security about his dad. And what's more, 
he had a new respect for his dad, a deepened trust in his guidance. He decided to give it another go, and he became a different kid, and his dad became a different dad, and that changed everything. Hmm. How does it go again? Perfect love drives out fear. Let's pray. I am so glad, God, you are uh, our Father. And I have so many messages in my head right this instant. I'm thinking of that one in Romans, that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. I'm thinking about that story of that prodigal son coming home. Just again and again, God, you show us who we are in your eyes. And you show us that you want to guide us and you want to empower us. And I ask that we would find in you who we are. And that you're for us. And nothing can change that or separate us from you because of Jesus. And so my prayer, God, is that as we walk into our weeks, you would, you would empower us to demonstrate love that comes from you to the people in our lives. And I pray that in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.